People who call themselves God's servants have a lot to live up to in terms of truly doing the Lord's kingdom work. They also have to deal with the worldly adversity that usually comes with trying to do what is right. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in a verse-by-verse study of the life of Elisha. In today's message, we officially begin our look at the life of Elisha by recognizing what a true servant of the Lord he was and how we can grow by following his example. Well, Phil, with today's passage, we begin our study of Elisha, and we're back again in the book of Second Kings, right about where we left off with Elijah. Could you remind us exactly how those two men's lives are connected? Yeah, just to refresh our memories, Mark, Elijah anointed Elisha to serve ultimately as his successor in ministry. And once he had been anointed, Elisha followed Elijah around and was his servant and assistant. And very importantly, right at the end of Elijah's life, when he ascended into heaven, Elisha was there and prayed to receive a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. Here's an interesting question. If you were to identify with either Elijah, whom we studied, or Elisha, the man we begin to talk about today, which one would you choose? Well, you know, Mark, I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, so it's hard to put myself in the shoes of a prophet, I suppose. I mean, these were great men of God, and yet... They are in the scriptures to be examples for us to follow in the footsteps of their faith. And I suppose that I more closely identify with Elisha, and that's partly because of the relationship that I had with the late James Montgomery Boyce, who many of our listeners will know is a great preacher of the Bible. And it was my uh, privilege for a number of years simply to serve as his assistant and to learn everything that I could from him. I imagine something like the way that Elisha tried to learn everything that he could learn from the great man Elijah. All right, we thank you, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 19, and listen to God's Word for us today. It is sometimes thought that all fairy stories have happy endings. The prince discovers the princess, or the children find their way back home, or the witches and the wild beasts are defeated, and everyone lives happily ever after. The truth is that most of the original fairy stories, the ones written by the Brothers Grimm, for example, do not have happy endings at all. In fact, many of them are not at all suitable for children. They are tales of woe, horror, and death. Suppose that the story of Baldy and the Two Bears, as it might be called, is a bit like that, even though it is not a fairy story. It is a spine-tingling thriller. What begins as a walk through the countryside ends with the attack of the killer bears. And the story preys upon some of our darkest fears. Poison, ridicule, gang violence, wild animals. At the beginning of Elisha's public ministry is more than just good entertainment. It is for our spiritual instruction, and it teaches that God's work done in God's way has God's blessing and God's protection. Now, Elisha had always done God's work in God's way. He began by answering God's call, and you may remember the story. While Elisha was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, Elijah went up to him and 
threw his cloak around him, and in that moment, Elisha did not hesitate. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate, and then he set out to follow Elijah. Elisha did not call himself into the ministry. He waited patiently for God's call, and then when that call came, he answered. He took everything that belonged to his former way of life, and he cooked it. Doing God's work in God's way also means being God's servant. And so once his farewell barbecue was over, Elisha set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant, the Scripture says. From that point on, Elisha was the valet to a prophet. He did Elijah's menial work. Eventually, he became known as the man who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. And he did that, staying by Elijah's side right up until those last moments when Elijah was taken up to heaven in the fiery chariot. Elisha learned how to become a leader by first becoming a servant. And this is that same pattern for ministry that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When God's work is done in God's way, it is also done in the power of God's Spirit. Before Elijah's ascension, he gave Elisha the opportunity of a lifetime. He said, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken away from you? In that moment, Elisha begged for what he most wanted and most needed in all the world, a double portion of the Spirit of God for ministry. He said, let me inherit a double portion of your Spirit. Elisha wanted as much as he could get of the living, breathing Spirit of God. So he asked for the inheritance of the eldest son, a double portion of his father's spiritual estate. And then Elisha took his stand on God's Word. In a sermon preached on the 150th anniversary of this church, James Boyce pointed out the way that Elisha took his stand on the absolute reliability of God's Word. He based his entire ministry upon it. After Elisha had asked for a double portion of the Spirit, Elijah prophesied, If you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. On that occasion, Dr. Boyce pointed out that this was God's Word, spoken by God's prophet, and for that reason, Elisha trusted the promise. And when he saw Elijah taken up to heaven in the way that Elijah had promised, he believed that he had received a double portion of the Holy Spirit. And he then acted on the basis of his faith in God's Word. After he had lamented Elijah's passing, he picked up the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. Elisha was staking his entire ministry on the reliability of God speaking in his word. For if he had failed in that moment with all the school of the prophets watching him from the other bank of the river, his ministry would have been over before it even began. But Elijah was convinced that that same spirit which had 
parted the Red Sea for Moses, and which had parted the Jordan River for Joshua and for Elijah, would also part the Jordan River for him. And so the Spirit did. And when Elisha crossed over on dry ground, the prophet said, the Spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. You see, Elisha did God's work in God's way from beginning to end. He waited for God's call and he answered God's call in all humility as a humble servant. He relied on the Spirit of God and through it all he took his stand upon the Word of God. It's worth asking ourselves if we are doing God's work in God's way. Many Christians try to do God's work their own way. They choose their own ministry in the church rather than waiting for God's call. Or they jump right in and do the ministry without praying for God's blessing before they begin. Or they only attempt that Christian work which they can do in their own strength. Or they measure success the way the world measures it, by numbers or by popularity. Or they base their teaching on the world's ideas apart from the teaching of God in Holy Scripture. But you see, when God's work is done without God's call or without God's Spirit or without coming under the authority of God's Word, it will not have God's blessing. So I ask again, are you doing God's work in God's way, serving in that calling in the church which God has called you to do, in humble reliance on the Holy Spirit, coming as one who serves, not worrying about whether you are getting as much credit for your ministry as you believe that you deserve. And in all of the ministry that you do, are you doing it under the authority of God's Word? As we've heard already, that is the way that all the ministries of the church have begun in this place. As God's people have understood what God's Word says about the homeless or about those who are suffering from AIDS or any of the rest of the ministries of the church, those ministries will only have God's blessing so long as they continue under the authority and direction of God's Word. That is God's way to do God's work. Now, when we do God's work in God's way, we receive God's blessing. And that is the lesson to be learned from the first city that Elisha visited in his public ministry. While he was living in Jericho, some members of the city council came to him with a problem. It was a problem in their water department. They said to him, look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Nothing is more devastating for a city than a bad water supply. The experts are beginning to say that this problem will become increasingly prevalent in the 21st century when they say water will become the world's most precious liquid resource. In any case, the water supply in Jericho was contaminated. What water the city did have was foul, brackish, and bitter. As a result, Jericho had become the sort of three-mile island of ancient Palestine. Actually, the word for unproductive is the same word that you would use for a miscarriage. The city was barren and impotent. And as is so often the case, this physical problem had a spiritual root. The water was poisonous 
because the city was accursed. You may remember that when Jericho was first conquered by the people of God, they traveled around the city for seven days blowing their trumpets and then the walls came tumbling down and the city was destroyed. And on that occasion, as you can read in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, Cursed before the Lord is anyone who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. That curse came true shortly before the ministry of the prophet Elisha. In Ahab's time, as we read in 1 Kings chapter 16, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son in accordance with the word the Lord had spoken through the prophet Joshua. Now we see that the city of Jericho had remained under God's curse. Its desolation was spiritual as well as physical. I suppose the same thing might be said of our own city. It is true that since 1960, some half a million people have moved out of Philadelphia. And as we drive in the city, we see large tracts of neighborhoods marred by graffiti and by abandoned buildings. There is crime in the streets. There is racial violence in the neighborhoods. And you see, these things all have their root, as all urban blight does, in sin. The same thing might be said of the desolation of the individual soul. The same principle holds true at the individual level. If you feel dry or barren or unproductive, the real thirst is in your soul. And what a dry city needs or what a thirsty soul needs is just what Jericho received, living water. Bring me a new bowl, Elisha said, verse 20, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him, and then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says, I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. You see, when Elisha did God's work in God's way, the city received God's blessing of living water. We might ask why Elisha threw salt into the spring. This is a question I had for the children during our opening exercises this morning, and I wonder if they have any good answers. One answer might be that when an ancient city was destroyed, the way the children of Israel destroyed Jericho, the ruins were sown with salt as a symbol of curse. So putting salt into the spring may have been Elisha's way of undoing the curse of Joshua. Or he may have done it because salt has restorative properties. Although it would take more than a bowlful to purify a spring and Putting salt in the water does not seem to be the best way to make it taste better, to make it more wholesome for plants. So I believe the best answer is that salt was a sign of the covenant. This is what God told the priests and the Levites in Numbers 18. Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you as an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord. There are just a few other references to the covenant of salt 
in the Old Testament. And so apparently salt was one sign of the covenant between God and his people. It may be that Elisha used it to renew the covenant between Jericho and God. Well, whatever Elisha's reasons, the real point is that God is the one who brought healing to the city, both spiritually and physically. This wholesome water was a sign of God's blessing. And anyone who wants the proof can go to Jericho and taste it. For as the scripture says, the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. Elisha's saltwater miracle may remind us of some other miracles in the Bible. It looks backward to Moses, who threw a piece of wood into the bitter water at Merah to make it sweet. But more importantly, it looks forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. For just as Elisha brought fresh water to a dry city, so the Lord Jesus Christ gives his living water, the living water of his spirit, to every thirsty soul. As we have already read, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. And there is one other connection between the ministry of Elisha and that of the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage may help to explain what Jesus meant when he said, you are the salt of the earth. This is perhaps the best Old Testament passage which refers to salt in this way. The servants of Christ are salt in the city. They bring blessing where there has been curse. They purify what is contaminated. And Christians do that by bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to the city. The transformation that needs to take place in Philadelphia or any other city is not economic, is not educational or social, although some of those things do need to take place. It is spiritual. The spiritual transformation begins to take place whenever God's people serve as salt in the city, bringing God's blessing and demonstrating their faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ by the way that they live. The great London minister Charles Spurgeon once preached a sermon called Blessing in the City. In the sermon he said, the city is full of care and he who has to go there from day to day finds it to be a place of great wear and tear. It is full of noise and stir and bustle and sore travail. Many are its temptations, losses and worries. But to go there with the divine blessing takes off the edge of its difficulty, and to remain there with that blessing is to find pleasure in its duties and strength equal to its demands. And so God has called us to be salt of blessing in the city. And that brings us to the story of Baldy and the two bears. Now, because it is such a frightening story, the commentators have struggled to know what to make of it. Gwillem Jones says the point of narrating this anecdote is not clear. It cannot have a serious point, and it does no credit to the prophet. Montgomery calls it a Bubenmarken, which is a fancy German term for a scary children's story. 
It is a sort of be nice to your pastor or else a bear will get you story, he says. This episode is better understood as a story about God keeping his prophets safe. When God's work is done in God's way, it not only has God's blessing, it also has God's protection. And this is how it happened. Elisha was on his way up to Bethel, and as he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you old bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. It is noteworthy that these bad boys lived in Bethel, where King Jeroboam had set up a golden calf for the worship of idols. It is no surprise that in a subsequent generation, Bethel had become a city with a problem with gangs. When one generation neglects the true worship of God, the next generation rises up and it hates God altogether. And these juvenile delinquents despised spiritual things. When they said, go on up, they might have been telling Elisha to get lost. Or perhaps, as is more likely, they were challenging his ability as a prophet. They could see that Elisha wore the prophetic mantle, and they had heard all the talk about Elijah's miraculous ascension with chariots of fire. Well, they wanted to see it too. They wanted to see if Elisha really was the prophet of God, and they doubted it. If you really are the prophet, then go on up. Let's see you disappear in fire and clouds. The second part of their taunt reveals something we would not otherwise have known, and that is that Elisha was bald. The Bible rarely mentions the physical appearance of the heroes and heroines of the faith. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Yet in this case, Elisha's appearance is important to the story. He may have been bald because he was a prophet. It is possible, as some believe on the basis of this passage, that Old Testament prophets wore a distinctive hairstyle in which part of their heads were shaved, not unlike the tonsure worn by medieval monks. In any case, what the youths of Bethel did was very wicked. We sometimes struggle with the terrible judgment revealed at the end of this passage, but I believe that is because we underestimate the severity of the sin. Elisha was taunted because he was God's servant. As one reads the Bible, one quickly learns that God expects his servants to be treated with the utmost respect. Whenever his servants are attacked, God takes it personally. And he especially hates the sin of dishonoring those he has called into spiritual leadership. Remember what happened to Korah and to Dathan and Abiram when they rose up against Moses. The ground opened up and swallowed them with all their possessions and with all their families. God's servants are to be approached with reverence and without mockery or abuse. Notice... What Elisha did not do, he did not defend himself. He did not scold. He did not challenge these young toughs to a fight. 
He did not even call down a curse from heaven in his own name or for his own glory. Rather, Elisha called down a curse in God's name for God's glory. He turned and looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Once Elisha had pronounced that curse, it was entirely up to God to carry out that curse, how and when he pleased. And it pleased him to do it right away. Two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Bears were not uncommon in Palestine in those days, but in any case, God was the one who sent the bears out of the woods at that moment, not Elisha. To curse God's prophet is to curse God himself, and to curse God is to come under the judgment of death. And this is because God's work, done in God's way, always has God's protection. We trust in that protection as we minister in the city. In recent weeks, we have faced some slight danger. An electrical short up in the tower of the church with an acrid burning smell. A member of the staff of the church held up on a street on the corner of 18th and Delancey, not far from the church. And then there are the real enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil with all their temptations and distractions. But when we do God's work in God's way, we can pray for and count on God's protection. We learn from Elisha's experience in Bethel that because God's work has God's protection, it is not to be mocked. It occurs to me as I read this chapter that much youth culture, both then as it was in the days of Scripture, is based on put-downs, upon ridicule. We think, for example, of the television and radio programs, whose names I will not mention, but you can think of some who well fall into this category. Many of these programs are vulgar, of course, and also profane. But the real problem with such programs is not so much the vulgarity or the profanity as it is the whole attitude about life and about the world and about other people. By itself, humor is not a good standard to judge what we ought to read or to watch or to hear. God himself has a wonderful sense of humor, but he also has a sense of what it is appropriate to laugh about, and there is more to godliness than simply being funny. No doubt what the youths from Bethel said to Elisha was hilarious. What could be funnier than a bald prophet making his way alone through the countryside? And yet nobody was laughing when two bears came out of the woods and attacked. Apparently, God did not think that Elisha's hairstyle or anything else about his ministry was all that funny. You know, the people of this world have often mocked the servants of God. They laughed at Joseph. They threw rocks at David. They mocked Jeremiah. In fact, at the end of the Chronicles, we read this summary of the whole Old Testament. They mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused. 
And all that mockery came to a deafening crescendo with the mockery of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. If it is true that to mock God's servant is to mock God himself, then it makes perfect sense that the incarnate Son of God would be mocked most of all. When he was handed over to be crucified, the soldiers stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They knelt down in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. And then they led him away to crucify him. And there those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. Quite hilarious, wasn't it? except that those who ridicule God's servant and those who did it on the day of Christ's crucifixion become subject to the curse of God and also to death. The same thing is true of anyone who ridicules another human being made in the image of God, especially those who do it to God's servants or do it in a mean-spirited way. That is why, in order to save you, Jesus had to die on the cross for your sins. Out of his great love, he accepted the curse and the death penalty for your sin. And the scripture says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. Instead, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Mockery. And ridicule, along with all the other sins, are what sent Jesus to the cross. And mockery and ridicule, along with all the other sins, were the very sins that Jesus was dying to forgive. Once you know the cost that was paid for mockery, you will be sure that the things that you laugh about actually are funny. Blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of mockers. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that we take too lightly the dignity of other human beings. We ask that you would forgive us for the great sin of mockery and ridicule. We ask that you would replace those sins with the blessing of the Holy Spirit, with encouragement, with words of joy and fellowship for one another. And we make this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, who died for all that mockery and ridicule for us. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. 
the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.